0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. This afternoon, I am so excited to have Dr. Ken Berry. He's a practicing board-certified physician, an Amazon best-selling author, and a passionate advocate of health on his YouTube channel, where he has over 1 million subscribers. Along with his online presence, he is active in his own community of Camden, Tennessee, where he's been practicing at the Berry Clinic since 2003. He is known for his direct, no-nonsense approach to health and wellness, which I love, um, he actually has his, his best-selling book is coming out in a second edition, Lies My Doctor Told Me, which is excellent. He's also in the process of writing a second book called Common Sense Keto for Type 2 Diabetics. He looks forward to working with the real people of the world and continuing his mission to bring an end to the obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemics, along with bringing awareness to such issues as thyroid health and hormone optimization. Welcome. Thank you so much. I've really been looking forward to this conversation, you know, largely because you know much like you have we we're, we're trained as traditional western medicine uh, you know physician nurse practitioner and i know for myself i really got tired of writing prescriptions and and a lot of our focus is on prescriptions as being the only way to address symptoms and yet we recognize you and i uh, and a whole tribe of individuals that that couldn't be farther from the truth there's so much more work that we can be doing but I find that, that the story behind the individual that I'm interviewing is really, really interesting. And obviously, I know a lot about your background, but my listeners may not, may not but I would love for you to share you know, what your evolution has been as a healthcare provider and, and man.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I'm a family practice physician and uh, classically trained in allopathic medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis. And so uh, during the bulk of my training as a physician, I also did my residency in in Memphis. Mm -hmm. I was well aware of metabolic disease, but at that time I had no idea what was causing it. Um, Metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, type two diabetes, and all of the complications that come with those are rampant in the Memphis population. So, But at that time I had no inkling Mm -hmm. that they were diet related i mean of course people you know are drinking pepsi and eating cheetos and honey buns yeah duh but (laughs) as far as the the traditional nutrition advice being incorrect and improper for a human being i had no idea in my training and and you know you remember your training you you were just trying to go along get along pass the test impress your professor not look like an idiot, <laughs> as you know, any more often than was necessary, right. and get out of there and win peace and start your practice. You weren't really interested as a training physician or, or, or nurse, advanced practice nurse. You're not really interested in the nuances and in the, you know, have they got this entire thing wrong? You know, you're not really asking <laughs> those questions during your training. So I graduated my residency and my first intention was to be an emergency room physician at which I started out, I was moonlighting during residency Mm -hmm. and started a full-time ED position as soon as I graduated. had no intention of having a clinic. I actually hated clinical family medicine practice Mm -hmm. because it was so monotonous, it was so repetitive. You know, old oh sinus infection, no oh hypertension, no oh diabetes, and then repeat over and over and over for eight hours a day, every day for the rest of your life. That did not appeal to me. And so, after uh, a few years in in the ED practice, every single uh, emergency department patient I saw, they would say something along the lines of, "I really like you, doc. You should open a clinic." And to be honest, the 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 watershed area I was practicing in was severely underserved with good quality family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics. There's no doubt about that. And so I thought, well, yeah, you know, I I might just start a clinic and have part-time hours or something just because, I mean, they really need a a family physician in this area. And so I started that in late 2002, and, and I saw eight patients the first day, 20 patients the next day, and I never saw fewer patients than that since and so I didn't even have time I, I was completely electronic from day one I had an EMR right. which was a terrible EMR but I didn't know the difference <laughs> and so I didn't even have time to learn the ins and outs of my EMR my practice got so busy so quick that uh, a year later i would be like oh the EMR does that I had no idea it did that because I didn't have time to learn it I thought I would you know see a few patients here and there and learn as I went that didn't happen. And so very, very busy practice, full book every single day. And so I noticed that I was gaining weight and it wasn't a big deal because I was wearing scrubs right. every single day of my life. Cause I was that kind, I was an ER doctor. I wore scrubs, right. even in the clinic, I would wear scrubs. And, and as you know, scrubs will lie to you.
0: Oh yes. Very and so,
1: you know, if you're wearing extra large scrubs, which is what I wore, that drawstring will fit probably a 48 inch waist before you run out of drawstring. <laughs> and so I had no idea how much weight I was gaining. And, and then uh, when I, uh, so I practiced in a very tiny little office building for a year it quickly outgrew that and had to, to kind of refurbish an old court square building. And then I tried to, you know, dress the part. I started wearing slacks and ties and I, I'm, I was like, when I went to buy some slacks, I'm like, no, that's, that's got to be, an, there's something wrong with these slacks. It says that I'm a 38-inch, 40-inch waist. That's not right, but I was, and so during the first few years of that practice, I gained a lot of weights, and at my heaviest, I was 297 pounds, wow. and I also became a pre-diabetic, uh, and so, yeah, I was, I, my A1C was 6.1 at, at the highest. And so I had severe reflux pain every single day. I had rosacea. I had uh, rashes. I had uh, severe joint pain every day. And I was—I previously was a three-sport athlete in high school and then uh, was on scholarship in college, blew out my ACL, put it into that. So I got all academic after that. And so that knee hurt every day. And I thought it was just the old injury, right? That's what it was. Had... uh, you know, bowel issues, not formally diagnosed with irritable bowel, but definitely had many of the symptoms. Was irritable, anxious, mm-hmm. down in the dumps every day. Just was miserable. And so it would, it would occur to me that when I would be counseling a patient, hey, you know, Jerry, you need to lose some weight, and you're you know you're you're pre diabetic or you're type two diabetic. I would notice that the patient's eyes they were making eye contact with me, and their eyes would flip down to my belly. And then back up when I would tell them to, you know, lose weight. And I was raised in a very common sense family. One plus one always equals two, regardless of how that makes you feel. And so it it became quickly just a comedy for me, in my mind, for me to walk into a patient's uh, exam room and tell them they needed to lose some weight. That was laughable. It's like, oh, okay. Thanks expert. I, as they looked at my <laughs> belly and that and that button right over my belly button was about to pop at any minute and cause an eye injury. I was like, yeah, I can't be that doctor. I can't. That that's That's not what I signed up for. And so I started trying to figure out what I was doing wrong and I was eating a bunch of junk. There's no doubt. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to you know, go over my nutrition notes from med school. I had a, a one one class that was like maybe twice a week for half a semester in nutrition. And 95% of that was teaching me how to, to provide nutrition for somebody who'd been severely injured in the ICU or the burn unit, uh, IV nutrition. And I was very good at that. I could keep you from starving to death or developing vitamin or mineral nutrition or deficiencies if you were in the intensive care unit. I was well trained at that. But just the care and feeding of the average person walking the street, I, was the, my, I can sum up the entirety of my medical school education. Number one, eat lots of whole grains. Number two, avoid saturated fat. And number three, jog. And so I thought, well, okay, that's what they taught me in med school. So I started doing that after another month or two of doing that. And keep in mind, I was not a non-compliant patient. I, I live with me. I know what I was doing. And so I was eating tons of whole grain bread bagels uh, English muffins mm-hmm. and I was avoiding all saturated fat wasn't eating any saturated fat at all and eating lots of fruit and veg you notice how mm-hmm. they always say the fruit first right, right. Exactly. and so that and, and jogging three or four times a week and at the end of that two months I gained another five pounds and yep. my numbers were no better so it was that was kind of a, an epiphany for me like oh hmm because I know, you know, every patient I always suspected, they were laying on the couch, drinking Pepsi, eating Cheetos and honey buns. That's why they continue to get fatter and more right. diabetic. But I knew I had this this n of one re- research study with me mm-hmm. and I knew there was nothing metabolically wrong with me. I was a normal person and I was following my own advice and getting fatter and more diabetic. And it was at that point I said, I wonder if there's a there's some basic errors in just the foundation nutrition advice that i'm giving and so i really started to read outside of my box and and read more mainstream books and and books that disagreed with everything i was taught to try to find the answer for me
0: well it's really inspirational to hear your own story and and i do agree that you know what we were taught in school was largely based off the food guide pyramid or you know eventually there became my plate uh, and I know within my community, I've been asked to do some my plate discussions in the schools, and I've actually had to tell the teachers, I can't teach that. Um, here's what I will teach as an alternative. But if I'm suggesting that every child in this room consume this much of uh, processed carbohydrates and really very small portions of protein and, you know, far too much focus on, Uh, you know, as you mentioned, healthy whole grains and, you know, other gluten-containing products when really what we need to be eating is, you know, a nutrient-dense whole foods diet, which is, you know, protein and healthy fats. And then, you know, obviously with children, maybe a little bit different, a piece of fruit may not be an issue for them, but, you know, not all the potatoes, not all the corn. I, I forget what statistic I read recently, but it was talking about The average American's diet when it comes to vegetables is either corn, carrots, or potatoes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's very little, you know, non-starchy vegetables, very little green vegetables, and obviously everyone is very individual. The end of one for each one of us. Some people tolerate the fiber, others do not. So you went through this end of one, recognizing your own advice was not working for you and very likely kind of delving into, you know, an alternative perspective. Is that when you found keto or did you try something before then?
1: Yeah. So the first three books I read that were obviously disagreeing with the guidelines Mm -hmm. were. Uh, The Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson, The Paleo Diet by Lauren Cordain. Mm -hmm. And then I got an old tattered copy of Dr. Atkins' Diet Revolution at a rummage sale for 50 cents. (laughs) And I read those, and they all three agreed with each other on a great many things. But they wholly disagreed with everything I was taught in med school and everything that the American Diabetes Association said, the American Heart Association, uh, the, the food pyramid, my plate. They disagreed with them almost completely. Mm-hmm. and i thought well you know these guys sound crazy but what i'm doing ain't working and that's that's what i would uh, recommend for everybody if what you're doing is not working then what you're doing is wrong and you should you should do some more research and rethink your premises mm-hmm. and so maybe maybe i've got some some of my basic foundational beliefs are just wrong and so based on those books i started doing kind of a hybrid primal ancestral paleo diet, which was better than my diet before, but still was not perfect by any means. And, and I noticed as I lowered the the total carbohydrate intake of my diet, so I started out a paleo diet eating lots of butternut squash and spaghetti squash and yams and quinoa. Oh my yeah. God, the pounds <laughs> of quinoa that I ate. Yep. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I'm doing a little better, but I don't know, maybe not. But I noticed the more the more fatty meat I ate and the fewer carbohydrates I ate, the better everything got. My weight, my levels of inflammation, my hemoglobin A one C, my markers of inflammation—they would get better as I ate fewer carbohydrates. And so over time, it kind of, what it kind of turned into was a low carbohydrate paleo paleolithic diet. That's kind of what, and I and I was doing pretty darn good with that. I was nowhere near near where I wanted to be, but I was getting there. And during the course of this, obviously, I was continuing to read and research, and I I discovered the ketogenic way of eating. And I thought, that sounds awfully sciency and faddish and weird. I don't know. I'll I'll check into it. But I realized (coughs) a whole food, real food ketogenic diet is basically just a very, very low-carbohydrate paleo diet that's really what it is you just stop the quinoa and all the the squash and yams and that's basically keto and i'm like oh okay well that's it's not as weird as i thought it was and so when i started eating a ketogenic diet oh man the weight was falling off i was having to buy new clothes my heartburn which had been severe uh you know when the Nexium sales rep came and brought Nexium samples my patients didn't get the Nexium samples. I got all those, and I, I was t- there was a time there for probably over a year. I was taking two Nexium a day every single day. That's how severe my heartburn was. And so, for heartburn sufferers, they understand this is not a joke. Heartburn is not funny. It, it it is almost disabling. You can't speak a complete sentence without swallowing or clearing your throat or trying to burp or whatever the hell needs to be done in this area because it never feels right even if there's not pain it's just not right and so i my my heartburn was 80 percent better with keto. i'm like wow Uh, and so i i considered that to be an anecdotal fighting like that there's no way my diet has made my heartburn better Mm -hmm. i believe it's made me lose fat that makes sense and then also it makes sense i'm eating pure carbohydrates, all of which break down into sugar. Mm-hmm. Therefore, my A1C is getting better. Yeah, that makes sense. But my knee doesn't hurt anymore. That's weird. That's got to be anecdotal. That can't be from the diet, mm-hmm. right? My rosacea, which I used to put uh, 1% hydrocortisone cream every single day to keep it where it was not noticeable enough to stand out.
0: Right,
1: It was essentially gone. I might use the hydrocortisone one or two times a month just to you know to keep it at bay my uh the other skin issues cleared up my my bowel issues became unnoticeable they were basically gone but early early on i didn't realize it was the diet doing all that Mm -hmm. i thought well maybe i'm just somehow healthier and i'm and i quit jogging when when i gained the five pounds i said to hell with jogging i'm never (laughs) jogging again and i haven't i've never jogged again after that um and we can talk about exercise later if you want to because i think that's a tertiary or quaternary issue. I don't think it's part of the bedrock, part of the foundation for fat loss Mm -hmm. and reversing diabetes. It's not necessary. And so then I started reading about this carnivore diet and I'm like, what is this madness, right? That crazy Sean Baker, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) But you know, he was 50 or 51 when I was reading about this and he looked pretty darn great. And he didn't, he didn't look like he had scurvy, and so I was still trying to, uh, I still believed at that time in eating the rainbow. I really felt like I needed mm-hmm. lots of greens and purples and yellows and reds in my diet to get all these magical phytonutrients that mm-hmm. we all talk about, right? But this guy was getting zero phytonutrients. He was, he was you know, the color of his rainbow was red. Yeah. Because he ate it rare. And so he, that, that literally was his rainbow, was fatty meat. And so I've since kind of, uh, and and I consider the carnivore diet to be a subset of a ketogenic diet, which is a subset of a low-carb diet, which is a subset of the paleolithic diet. So all of these make ancestral sense. They include foods that our ancestors have eaten for the entire time that we've been homo sapiens sapiens. So you can't say these are unnatural diets, you can't say that they're you know, there's no way they can be uh, proper or appropriate for human beings. Of course, they are. They contain things we've eaten for hundreds of thousands of years. And so I, I didn't at any time feel like I was eating an unnatural or an unsafe diet because these are foods we've eaten our entire existence on this planet.
0: Well, and it's really interesting. And There's so many great nuggets in there. But I know carnivore right now in particular has gotten a lot of attention. And uh, Paul Saladino, I mean, has a great book, Carnivore Code as well. Uh, I've spoken to both him and Sean, and, and I agree that there's no question that they're thriving uh, on a carnivore diet. And what's interesting to me is I had been paleo for years. I mean, I've existed in the low-carb space. I've done well, got rid of psoriasis, you know, healed my gut, all these other things. But last year when I was hospitalized, I came out, and after having a 13-day hospitalization and losing 15 pounds, my digestion being so off, the only thing my body could digest, and I would not get sick was meat. And so I did. And the only thing I craved, here's the funny thing. I had meat and red meat in almost 20 years for moral reasons. And when I was in the hospital, you know what I thought about? I thought about two things, drinking water because I was so thirsty because I was NPO. I wasn't allowed to have anything by mouth and burgers. I dreamed about burgers. I dreamed about a big juicy steak. So what did I eat when I came out? I just let my body just kind of, you know, eat what it wanted to eat. And then of course my Italian mother, Every time she would come to visit, she was convinced I would die because I wasn't having a vegetable and she was always pushing fruit. And so I finally had to explain to her, I said, my body no longer tolerates that amount of fiber and my end of one. And I'm very open about this. I'm like, listen, this is what used to work for me. Now greens don't like me. My, my body doesn't like oxalates right now. You know, I'm doing a lot of gut work. But the thing that I came to find out much to the point that you just made is that if we look at enhanced ancestral health perspectives, this is how our ancestors ate. You know, we were eating elk, we were eating bison, we were eating, um, you know, beef, we were eating these, these, you know, very nutrient dense, fattier cut meats. And I'm, I'm sure there are people that are even a little bit more exotic. I mean, we're starting to do some lamb in my house, which people call land salmon. Uh, but this is really the way our bodies are designed to thrive. We're not designed to necessarily all do really well with uh, lots of fruits and vegetables. And, and I think you would probably agree with me when I say this, that, most americans eat a lot of fruit and not a lot of vegetables and when they're not eating you know they're not they're doing like tropical fruits like mango and pineapple and banana whereas i would say generally where i suggest people kind of think about is if you're going to have some fruit be smart do like a low glycemic berry don't do copious amounts of it and for the love of god if you tolerate vegetables get some greens and if you tolerate them if you don't then that's okay too you're not going to die like i remind people I don't tolerate salad anymore and I'm doing just fine. So, you know, when we're looking at this kind of pivotal change, you know, you went from standard American diet to, you know, looking at a ketogenic diet, looking at carnivore, finding out what, you know, works well. Did you start introducing these concepts directly to your patients at that time and start seeing some results that were really uh, encouraging in terms of saying, okay, this N of one has become N of 50 and clearly I'm on to something.
1: Yeah. After I'd lost about 40 pounds, personally wow. and reverse my pre-diabetes my my a1c was back in the normal range i thought well you know this is, i mean it, there's no research that supports any of this but dude it worked great for me and i actually like my diet and i feel better <clears throat> even mentally even mm-hmm. mentally and i think that's very important to always talk about my anxiety level was better mm-hmm. uh, when i was very unhealthy i was always angry. Everything made me angry. And that was, that was my go-to emotion was anger. No matter what happened, I was mad about it. And that kind of stuff was getting better too. And I said, you know, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer this way of eating to my most morbidly obese patients, patients who are already talking to the bariatric surgeon you know, their BMI is 35 or above. And I had, I had a few patients whose BMI was in the high 40s, low 50s. And I thought, what's, what are they going to lose? They're already mm-hmm. as unhealthy as a human can possibly be. Dang. And so I would, when they would come in for routine refills, because they were always on a list of medicines, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, I've got this. And they would always, you know, obviously my patients could see me and go, wow, doc, you look great. You look better. What have you been doing? Mm -hmm. And so for my most morbidly obese patients with a BMI above 35.
0: Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic Maca powder, turmeric, Quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification. slash cynthia that's 10% off your first pur- that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link slash cynthia it's delicious and nutritious today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. it combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition stress WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients.
1: I would tell them this is what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. And I think probably you should try this too. I just eat lots of fatty meat, a little bit of veg, every now and then some berries, and I drink unsweet tea, black coffee, and water, and I use salt and pepper and all the spices, but I, that's what I eat on a daily basis. And so for most of the men, I would just point them to the bulletproof diet mm-hmm. that, uh, because there's a great infographic on yep. that, which is basically very low carb, paleo keto. Yep. And then uh, for the women, I would always have to have, would have, we would have to have some vegetables in there. they made them uncomfortable, right? <laughs> and so these people would come back in three or six months, for the refills.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: they had lost 20, 30, 50 pounds. And were like, and or they would come back in a month and say, Doc, I've lost 25 pounds in a month. Is it safe for me to do this for another month? And I would say, well, yeah, I think it's, I mean, obviously you're getting healthier. Let's do it for another month. Mm-hmm. And so I had all these people trying this weird experimental diet, and they would do it for a month at a time or three months or six months. And then they would ask, "Could I do this more? I, I like eating lots of ground beef and bacon and, and I like broccoli, so it's fine. And so I would give them my permission <laughs> to, to eat the proper human diet for another one to three to six months. Right. And and so I continued during this time to lose more fat and, and just to feel better. And so I thought, this is dumb. I'm, I'm going to start recommending this to all my patients who have a BMI of 30 above Mm -hmm. so if they're diagnosed with morbid obesity i'm going to recommend this to them Mm -hmm. and so i started that i I widened my parameters and so that gave me a lot more patients. you can imagine a family practice uh in in the southern united states i had a lot of people (laughs) whose bmi was 30 and above Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: all everybody if, if they chose to do this, they, were, they would come back for their follow-up saying, man, yeah, this. But I kept hearing from these patients, yeah, I've lost 42 pounds, whatever, whatever. But let me tell you about my knee. Mm-hmm. Or let me tell you about my depression. Or let me tell you about my bowels. Mm-hmm. Because they were not just improving their body fat percentage and their A1C. They were noticing all of these other effects. And many of these effects overlapped my personal effects that mm-hmm. I had their heartburn was gone their joint pain was much better i had a couple of patients who had were on the schedule to have knee replacement surgery
0: mm-hmm.
1: had called him the orthopedic office and said and canceled their appointment then said i'll call you back if it starts to hurt again but right now i have no pain so i'm not going to replace this joint until it's hurting like it was before and you know obviously budding within me was this thought of is the is this diet doing all this stuff? That's unheard of first of all. secondly, it sounds very snake oilish and very woo-woo right Like oh my diet cured my arthritis yeah. right but after well, I'm hearing this from 10, 20, 50 patients, it's kind of hard to ignore that right now, yeah. and then uh, I kind of I kind of think upside down and backwards sometimes and so I started thinking, is it this diet that has magical things in it that is curing these things or or? Are there things in the standard American diet that are causing these problems? And when they start eating this way, they're eliminating those things from their diet. And that when I when when I, when that thought occurred to me, that was very powerful because then I'm like, okay, well, what what is in the standard American diet that that is not in this diet that is causing all these problems? And that's when I really started to get excited about this because now, now I'm not recommending adding these magical phytonutrients or zoo nutrients these magical things no that's not what we're doing here what we're doing is we're removing slow poisons Mm -hmm. from your diet that these poisons don't kill you today or next week or next month but they keep you inflamed they keep you in pain they keep you sick but they don't kill you quickly and so nobody gets sued over it Right. So all the the lawyers are happy. The board of directors are happy for the big food corporations. And then the big pharma corporations are happy because if you eat those foods, you're going to have to take this handful of pills every day. Mm -hmm. So it's like a win win for big food and big pharma corporations. But the patients are suffering every single day and they have no idea because nobody's talking to them and saying, hey, I think it's your diet. Hey, I think it's your diet. And so at that point, I I pretty much I've been recommending I've been doing it for over a year. And and I had patients who had been doing it. No one had gotten sick. No one had had any side effect or complication. And I had hundreds of patients eating very, very low-carb diets, mm-hmm. full of red meat, full of fatty meat, full of seafood, and some veg, but not a lot of veg, and, and almost no, no fruits anymore. I had almost told people, you know, especially the melons and the, mm-hmm. the bananas and those yeah. big green grapes that are so tasty, mm-hmm. that stuff is just basically natural Dessert, that's what that is. And so I started recommending to all my patients who had any weight problem whatsoever or any A1C problem whatsoever based on my little anecdotal experiments I'd been doing with now hundreds of patients. And so I I never, to this day, I have not had a patient who had a complication from eating keto or who had a side effect that was bad from eating a ketogenic diet. So at that point, I was going home and telling my wife, Nisha, who is, is just, I mean, I, I there's no, I'd probably be, who knows? Who knows? If I didn't have Nisha, I don't know. But she, well, I came home, you know, bitching about something the American Diabetes Association had just sent my office and telling her about all these patients and how if I, if I made my patients eat like the ADA says, they'd all be fat and sick and diabetic again. And she said, you know what you need to do? You need to you need to make a YouTube video about this. Mm -hmm. And that was about two and a half years ago. And I'm like, what? Oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm a doctor. I don't make, I'm not going to be a YouTuber. What are you talking about? And so this conversation kind of went on for a few weeks. And finally she said, I know what you could do. And I'm like, what? She said, you could shut up and make a YouTube video. (laughs) And she said, how many, how many patients do you see a day at the office? And I said, I'm anywhere between 30 and 50 depending on the day. And she said, so you help 40 people a day, five days a week. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess. And so she did the math. So you help 200 people a week. Yeah, that's that's probably right. She said, you know, if you made a YouTube video, you could help thousands of people every day. Even when you're off on Saturday or Sunday, the video would still be there helping people. And at that point, I had to admit something that every husband is terrified of. I had to admit that she was right. I'm like, yeah, no, you're right. She's like, you took an oath, right? And and you're you literally want to help people. So why would you not help people on YouTube? And I'm like, Okay, you win. You're right. The those dreaded words that husbands hate to say. And so I started making YouTube videos and and they they seem to be, you know, they seem to be helping people and to be popular. And so I've just kept doing that over the last two and a half years. And it it turns out that she was very, very right. You know, I'm now able to help people in other countries. I'm now able to help people who don't even speak English. I'm now able to help people who I've never met in person. And so to be able to amplify this very important message that what you eat really, really matters really a lot. That that has changed the whole game for me, and I and obviously for other people as well. Uh, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube video or a Facebook post, those things reach people that you could never reach in your clinic or in your office. And uh, that's kind of when she she unleashed me onto the masses, and that's that's kind of the story up to
0: now. Well, I think that's a wonderful story, and I have to say, I think your wife was brilliant to have really you know strongly encouraged you. And I think for so many of us that are healthcare providers. You know, we might be a little introverted and we might think, oh why would I want to do that? And so you know if you're not following uh, Dr. Barry's uh, YouTube uh, channel, it's a fantastic channel with lots and lots of resources. but let's pivot a little back to some of the things that you just touched on. So we know 40 percent of Americans are obese um, and even a larger percentage are actually overweight. And so if we're advocating for a diet that is anti-inflammatory, highly satiating, you know better balances you know not only blood sugar but hormone optimization, It's definitely something to consider, and it may not be that every person that's that's watching or listening needs to do keto. It could be a variation. It could be low-carb. I'm low-carb. I'm not ketogenic. Well, probably with the amount of intermittent fasting that I do, uh, I'm sure that I am, but the point being, there are lots of variations, and I know that many women get nervous about some of the dogma that is kind of spewed about keto. I had Amy Berger on a few weeks ago, who was lovely, and I said to her, I can't seem to find like a real explanation of what is considered to be high-carb, moderate-carb, low-carb. I know that generally when we're talking about ketogenic diets, it's less than 30 grams of net carbs a day. With that being said, when you're talking to your male or female patients, when you're kind of trying to highlight like the average American diet, what I read was 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day, which is stupefying, uh, but easy to get there if you're drinking a lot of your calories, eating a lot of sweets, a lot of carbs – um, but but for you, when you're talking to your patients, if you're talking about you know low, moderate, high carb, where are those numbers for you? Um, obviously, again, I, I referenced the ketogenic diet. From my understanding, is thirty grams or less. Where do those other you know kind of um, those out? what those actually those other markers? Where do they fall?
1: So for me, my, and these are all arbitrary, they're not Mm -hmm. yet based on any meaningful research, but I consider anyone who's eating, and I I only count total carbs, because Mm -hmm. most people who actually have looked into the fiber issue, they realize that, yeah, you do break down some of the fiber, Mm -hmm. and uh, fiber is not a carbohydrate-free food, that absolutely is not true, especially when you're talking about oat fiber. And wheat fiber, you do break some of that down in your small intestine. It may not be four calories per gram's worth, but you're getting somewhere between one and a half and two and a half gram or calories per gram out of that fiber. And so, the, anybody who tells you that fibers are free food, that you don't digest any of that, your maybe your uh, the bacteria in your large intestine breaks some down and you get some energy from that. They don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I count total carbs and I, I just find it easier. And then also the uh, big food manufacturers who are increasingly entering the low carb keto space, they can't play reindeer games on their <laughs> their labels, right? Because huh? if you're counting total carbs, then there's no, there's no room for, oh, we put some tapioca uh, starch or some, you know, some, some, mm-hmm. oat. uh fiber no none of that stuff you if it's a carb you count the carb and so anybody eating over 100 grams a day of total carbs i would consider to be eating a you know that's not low carb i think at 100 grams that's really where you start talking about a low carb or a lower carb diet and then for many people that's all they have to do is get their total carbs under 100 a day and they start to immediately notice benefits and i would say i would i would add my three axioms which is number one Uh, eliminate all sugar from your diet, both added and natural. Number two, eliminate all grains from your diet, including quinoa, amaranth, rye, millet, all that, oats, corn, wheat, rice, all that stuff is inflammatory for human beings, and contains things that will cause inflammation. And then number three is to remove all vegetable seed oils from your diet. Canola, corn, soybean—all those guys are inflammatory in nature. Their omega six to omega three ratio is way too high. So, with those three things being kind of the the axioms that everything's built on, then we're going to say under 100 grams of total carbs a day—that's low carb. And then, but that's not that's not low carb enough for many people. But it works for for a lot of people. And so, then I think the next break would be at 50 total grams a day. And that's perhaps, uh, that would be often ketogenic, but not always ketogenic. And then 20 total grams a day, that's going to put virtually every human adult into some level of ketosis. Mm-hmm. And then for, for me, I have to be even lower carbohydrate than that. So a lot, for a lot of people, I talk about a carbohydrate knob. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like you said, if you're eating the standard American diet, your are set to 200 to 300 total grams a day, maybe even more if you're counting total grams. Yeah. And then so just turn the knob down to 100 and try that for a month. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that month, if you've made improvement, keep doing that. If you have made no improvement in a month, then let's turn the, the carbohydrate knob down to 50. Mm-hmm. Let's see what that does for a month. And if you, make, if you make improvements, you lose fat, your inflammation gets better, keep it at 50 that's your setting for now. Uh, for me, I have to have the knob as close to zero total grams of carbohydrates as I can possibly get it in order for me to have optimal Kinberry, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, would still be, I would still be non-diabetic if I ate 50 total grams of carbs a day, but I would still be holding too much weight around the middle. And I wouldn't be happy with how I look or how I feel. And so until somebody can point out the nutrient deficiencies that I'm developing, Eating a a ketovore or a carnivore diet, I'm going to keep eating that way because I feel great. People say that I'm I'm not as hard on the eyes as I used to be. I look younger. I get that comment a lot. You look younger than you did five years ago. And I don't feel like you can have that said about you. By eating an unhealthy diet, I don't think an unhealthy diet is going to somehow make you look younger and look better than you did before, unless you're having cosmetic procedures done, right, which I'm not. So I think that the diet I'm eating has to be very healthy or I wouldn't be getting those uh, both, you know, absolutely measurable benefits, but also just those kind of more uh, ephemeral benefits that, that I get compliments on that I didn't get that I didn't used to get. And so that for me would be the breakdown of carbohydrate. Uh, but obviously there's no research backing that up. That's just what I've kind of teased out over doing this for the last seven, six or seven years.
0: I'm sure by now you've heard me or others talk about the benefits of using CBD oil, and I'm telling you that it works. Direct CBD Online provides natural alternatives to prescription painkillers and medications. They sell only the highest quality CBD oils, edibles, creams, and more to help you on your search for natural well-being. And they strive to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and the products and supplements you use. If you've been thinking about trying out CBD, I highly encourage you to use Direct CBD Online. Click the link in the description to get started today. Now, and, I, and what I hear a lot of you talking about is bioindividuality. and That was a term I didn't learn in my nursing or nurse practitioner program, but definitely one I learned in my functional nutrition training, you know, really talking about how what works for you may not work for someone else and, and really encouraging my patients to figure that out. And the bulk of the, the patient population I work with are women. Uh, ironically, you know, women that are, you know, hitting middle age, late 30s, early 40s into 50s and beyond. And I think keto for many of them is confusing. I I believe that well-meaning people will tell women that are heading into perimenopause, you know, the five to seven years preceding menopause will encourage them to eat copious amounts of fat uh, while they're, you know, trying to try a ketogenic diet. I just remind them that fats, you know, healthy fats are not bad, but too much of any one thing is not beneficial. And, you know, fats tend to be a a more nutrient dense kind of, of food. So When you have women that are interested in doing a ketogenic diet, are there any tips or any suggestions that you make to them as they kind of dip their toe in the pond, if you will?
1: Well, what I'm trying to do is move away from even talking about a ketogenic diet because it immediately sounds either fattish to some people or too sciencey for other people also if you're doing keto then probably you know there's going to be some guru out there who recommends that you check your ketones
0: yes which which
1: i don't think is necessary at all and so nisha and i and some of our close friends are beginning to refer to this as the proper human diet and so (laughs) this makes it sound first of all very natural very normal actually it's proper it's good mm-hmm. it is a human diet so it's there's nothing faddish or weird about it experimental we've been eating this way for our entire time on this planet mm-hmm. and it's a diet and by diet we don't mean a diet like weight watchers we mean a diet as in a way of eating mm-hmm. uh you know you talk about your cat's diet your cat may not be on a diet but mm-hmm. that's just what they eat that's how we use that word and so if you're eating a proper human diet that that and you are avoiding all sugars, added or natural, you're avoiding all grains and you're avoiding all industrial seed oils and then you've got your carbohydrate knob and you've decided you're going to set that at 100 or 50 or 20 wherever you decide to set it then you get immediate feedback from your body. You don't have to monitor anything. Unless you're a diabetic, I want you to watch your blood sugars just mainly so you can give yourself high fives in the mirror, but also just to, you know, out of a kind of a uh, overwhelming sense of trying to be as safe as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but that's it. You don't have to. And so you eat basically lots of fatty meat and some veg and that's it. And you eat. And, and then, then this brings back this whole other thing. You don't count calories. You don't have to. You don't portion control. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. Right? How many times have you breathed in the last minute? Are you tracking that? You have an app that you, you have, you're you not tracking that because your body's got that. Right. Your brainstem and your hormones have got that set exactly where it needs to be and they adjust it from minute to minute. What about how many times your heart has beaten the last minute? Are you tracking that and recording that and trying to? No, you're not. Your brainstem mm-hmm. and your hormones have got your heart rate exactly where it needs to be at this moment and it, it adjusts it regularly, right? Well, guess what? Our thirst and our appetite are also controlled by our brainstem and our hormones, just like your heart rate and your and your respiratory rate. But if you're eating habit forming, addictive, improper foods, then you're mucking up your appetite and your and your thirst centers and they can't function properly because you're basically poisoning them. But when you follow the three axioms, remove those things, and, you're, and you set your carbohydrate knob, then all of a sudden your, your hunger stops betraying you,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Once you broke the addiction to the, the habit-forming grains and other carbohydrates, then you don't feel hunger when you're really bored or when you're under stress or when your addiction is calling you. That goes away. And the same, and you know, there's all these gurus who tell you to drink two gallons of water a day. And if you're hungry, you should drink water because you may be hungry. You may just be thirsty. All that's, that kind of all that foolishness kind of goes away. And you're left with if you are hungry, eat. When you are full, stop eating. <laughs> <laughs> and then don't eat again until very, very complicated calculus here until you're hungry again. And that that very basic advice starts to actually work again on a very low carbohydrate diet that doesn't include any of the inflammatory or habit forming things that are in the standard American diet. And so that, that's that's literally uh, you avoid those the three things I talked about. You set your carbohydrate knob where you where you think it should be, and as long as you're making improvement, then that's where it should be right now. And then if you're not hungry, don't eat. When you get hungry, eat. When you're full, stop eating. Mm-hmm. And don't eat again until you get truly, truly physiologically hungry. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're not thirsty, don't drink. That's literally it. That's as complicated as it, as it gets. When you're removing and excluding the mm-hmm. slow poisons and the habit-forming things and the inflammatory things, you actually can get almost immediate feedback from your body about hunger and about thirst and so all of a sudden this thing that we used to be consuming the majority of our conscious thinking let's see this has got 400 calories and this is four ounces and I need to eat a palm-sized portion of this and I need to track all this and write this down and I got to look that up when I get home because I don't know how many grams of whatever that's got in it all of a sudden all that foolishness just kind of goes away and you, you act like our ancestors acted for the 99.99% of the time we've been on this planet. Mm-hmm. If you're not hungry, you find something to do. When you get truly hungry, you go find some food. And you eat until you're comfortably stuffed. Which, for many people listening, I'm sure that sounds sinful. That sounds gluttonous. What do you mean eating you're full? I've, I haven't done that in 42 years. But yeah, when you're eating the proper human diet, you get to eat to are full. And then you stop eating and you don't eat again until you're truly hungry again. And I think when you simplify it and you you help people understand this, may, it actually makes sense to do that mm-hmm. unless you're eating inflammatory things or you're eating habit forming things or you're just eating, you know, stuff that that's going to muck up your hormones and and, and confuse your brainstem, yeah, then you can't trust your your hunger. You're right. You can't trust your hunger because you could be mad at your husband and, and you'll feel that as hunger. Or you could be stressed out because of this bill and that could manifest as hunger because your system is mucked up.
0: Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, Head over to www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. At some point, we've all been sold a big slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. With all the other unhealthy, improper things you're doing. Right. Well, I I think a lot of what I hear is the concept of intuitive eating, which for a lot of people freaks them out. They haven't eat until they're full. They don't wait to eat until they're hungry. They eat on a conditioned response of, okay, it's eight o'clock in the morning. I got to eat breakfast and right. I've got to stop at 12 o'clock and I have to have a dinner at five and I have to have snacks in between. And so I find a lot of my patients that it makes them very uncomfortable. They want to know how many calories they need to eat. Right. They want portion sizes. I always sound like once you get to a point where your satiety has been met, then you will kind of that, that, you know, I mean, it, it also on so many levels. I mean, it this balance between leptin and ghrelin, and these two hormones that impact satiety and impact you know receptors in our brain and our stomachs to let us know and to validate, yes, you are full. And much to the point that you made, a lot of these junky foods that we have. Not only are they hyperphagic, I always tell them if you have a protein bar as an example, because everyone wants things they can take with them, which I get and when you travel, not that much of us, many of us are traveling right now with social distancing, but you're getting on a plane and you want to think about bringing something in case what's offered is not uh, not something you're interested in eating. And I would say, if you have a protein bar and you want a second one, what is that telling you? And so I, that kind of recognition that there's something in that bar that is telling your brain you're not full or that you need That's more right. of it. And it's because yep. it is full of crap and junk,
1: as yeah. hard it's as not it is protein. for people.
0: Yeah, as hard as it is for people that whether it's the seed oils, and I want to touch on the seed oils because I did i I've done a lot of you know Facebook and IG lives talking about I went to Costco or I went to Trader Joe's and my standards are as follows. I want a food that has no soy and no seed oils. Honest to God, Trader Joe's is Trader Junk, and I really struggle. Unless I'm buying like a fruit or a vegetable, but of all their processed stuff, almost everything is laden with soybean oil, laden with other seed oils, um, laden, it's just to me, it's so, I, I just can't wrap, and my kids now know, they'll pick up labels and look at things. But I think for anyone that's listening, what both of us are saying is that the food we choose to eat has a profound impact on our perception of satiety, hunger, satisfaction, uh, metabolic flexibility, which is our ability to, you know, control our blood sugar, our blood pressure, sleep, uh, you know, do we have a libido, et cetera. And I always use things as a litmus and I want to slide into, because I know we are very much proponents of intermittent fasting, which is one of my favorite strategies. Although I find sometimes we have to ratchet in the food piece first before we can let them fly and be successful for fasting. Um, and and obviously this is something I'm near and dear to my heart because I, I feel like it was the missing link for me in middle age to kind of harness in like, okay, I know that I've always been thin, fit and healthy, uh, my entire life. And then I hit middle age and it was like, everything changed. And now I'm back to where I was. Um, but for anyone that's listening, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts when you're working with your patients. Do you start with the diet piece first as well? And then kind of start with intermittent fasting. I, I think a lot of women in particular they're focused on weight loss, so they're willing to do whatever. So they restrict more, they restrict more calories, they sleep less, they stress more, they want to do fasting, fasting's not working. And I have to remind them, like, there's so many things that have to be working well to make intermittent fasting work well for you.
1: Yeah, totally agree. So first back to the the protein bars and the protein shakes. Mm -hmm. If the listener, if they have, if they are a big believer in protein bars and protein shakes, I want you to look at the nutrition label. Mm -hmm. And look at the total protein versus the total carbohydrate. What you're going to find 99% of the time is that that protein bar is actually a carbohydrate bar because it has more total grams of carbohydrate than it does a protein. So why why don't they call it a carbohydrate bar? Because that's what it is. And the same goes for the protein shakes. They're actually carbohydrate shakes. (laughs) And that's actually what's messing up your satiety. That's why you want to eat four of the protein bars Mm -hmm. because of the carbohydrates. They have many, many traits in common with habit-forming drugs. Mm. They light up the same centers of your brain for pleasure and for addiction as a habit-forming illegal drugs light up on a PET scan. So this is not up for debate. We know this happens. And the big food manufacturer that made your protein bar, they also know that. Yeah. That's why they make it that way. So you can't eat just one. Yeah. That's how big food makes billions of dollars a year. So now the the do I recommend fasting first or low carb first? I personally feel like it would be a crime to recommend fasting first and i'm a you know if you've seen my youtube channel I'm a huge proponent of fasting, but what I found is if you read first thing, first and foremost is what you eat that is the bedrock everything is built on, including your body and your brain. But so if, if just imagine if I had a patient come in and they're eating the standard American crap and I said, okay, I want you to start doing a 16 hour fast a day. Do you know That would be torturous. Mm -hmm. That would be, uh, it would be impossible. Ultimately, they might be able to do that for a day or two or a week or two, Mm -hmm. but you, they have to eat every two hours or they feel like they're getting low blood sugar. They, They start having withdrawal symptoms from the carbohydrates and the other habit forming things in the junk. There's no and so what one hundred percent of their success would be based on willpower right and so if they had a lot of willpower they might maybe could do that for a month or two and maybe lose some weight but I, I would predict a yo-yo cycle there because at some point their willpower would play out and they would gain all the weight back so where's willpower in the brain it's in the the frontal cortex right in the in the and so it has nothing to do with the brainstem whatsoever when you and I are able to reach into somebody's diet and hack their brain stem and their hormones, that makes willpower irrelevant, or or at least much less irrelevant than it is on every other calorie restriction diet or semi-starvation diet in the world. From Weight Watchers to Jenny Craig to Flexitarian to all those guys are semi-starvation diets. Yeah, if I lock you in my barn and starve you, duh, you're going to (laughs) lose weight. Yes, of course. But that is not sustainable because it, it all hinges on your will, you having lots of willpower every single day. But with a, with a low-carb keto carnivore diet, there's much less willpower needed. Mm. If you say, I am hungry, I'm going to sit down and eat as much bacon and ribeye as I can hold. And when I'm stuffed, I'll stop eating. There's no, there's no willpower involved in that. But I would say, yes, go and do that now. And you would. And then you would be so full and so satiated from the protein and the fat in that you would not want to eat again for several hours or many hours. And so I always start with a low carb diet full of proper human foods. And as you've noticed at Trader Joe's and Costco, if you remove all the sugar and all the grains and all the seed oils, you're shopping at three places in the store: the meat aisle, the dairy aisle, and the produce. That's literally that's where you go for food, because guess what? That's where they keep the proper human food in those three sections. So, yeah, when you eliminate all the, the three crappy items, you're not having to wander the whole store anymore. You go to three sections and you leave because that's where real food is. And so, that, that you're exactly right. Any processed food is going to have one of the vegetable oils in it it's going to have grains in it it's most likely going to have sugar in it because with those three ingredients sugar grains and, and vegetable oil big food can make thousands of di- seemingly different products that have a shelf life of two to ten years and have a huge markup profit wise yeah but when you start talking about real food ribeye Ground beef, bacon, broccoli, right? Uh, blueberries, mm-hmm. uh, real cheddar cheese. Right. Those things have a known shelf life, which is usually very short because it's real food. Right. They have a very small markup, profit markup. You can't mark those up very much, right? And so the the big food corporations are not interested in those. They want you. To, they want to give you a protein bar because mm-hmm. they know you'll overeat it. They know it's shelf-stable for four years. They got all of the, the ingredients for it essentially free to them on, on the scale that they buy this stuff, the grains and the sugar and the seed oils and the pea protein for the protein. They get it essentially free, so it's a 1,000% profit markup for them. Yeah, why, why would they have any incentive of figuring out a model of selling real human food? That, that, would, that would break their model because it doesn't work in a big food model.
0: Absolutely. There's one statistic that I want to share uh, with the listeners. And and when we're talking about the weight loss industry, so we're pivoting again, but when we're talking about the weight loss industry, it is a 160. So it's 166000 sorry, $166 billion a year industry. So there is a huge incentive to convince us we have to have potions and powders and crap in order to lose weight, as opposed to what we are talking about—eating real, nutrient-dense food, um, adding in strategies if appropriate, like intermittent fasting—you know, getting high-quality sleep—you know, all these—you know—hermetic stressors like exercise. I know we're going to tie that in. Um, getting sunlight exposure, all these things that don't benefit that industry that is trying so hard to keep us hooked to this crap and garbage that our bodies genuinely don't need. And let me be really clear. Like I am a very much a moderation, not deprivation person. So I recognize there are people you're traveling, maybe your mom that's nursing. It's hard to maybe be making every single thing from scratch. I totally get it. But the bulk of our diet should not be things in pack, in packages, boxes, and bags. It should be things that are recognizable, as you've been mentioning. They should be things that don't have a lot of ingredients. I always say... You know, when I was in my my nutrition training, I remember they used to say five ingredients or less, which is reasonable. Um, for full disclosure, I get asked a lot about do I like chips? Well, I don't really eat chips, but there is a product uh by a, a company called Banana, and it's coconut oil, sea salt, and plantain. Now that's obviously a higher carb thing, but if I want a chip, I want it to be something that I recognize every single ingredient. I know they're real things, and it's not something I do often. So yes you know, you know, given, you know, the, the, the weight loss industry and their desire to continue to hook us, whether it's, You know, these little containers that tell us we can have a portion of goo or, you know, we can have a pile of yuck at certain intervals or the concept of mini meals. I mean, I used to be that person that would get up really early, do a hardcore conditioning class, shower at the gym. I'd have a protein shake before and after because that's what I was told I needed. And then I would have a small meal before I started seeing patients in the hospital. And everyone thought it was so funny because I had all these little containers for snacks, you know, my mid-morning snack, my mid-afternoon snack, my lunch, my lunch. Uh, and I laugh now because one of the benefits when, you know, we're eating nutrient dense foods, we don't get hungry as often. Um, of I know when I'm fasting, I don't eat until 12 o'clock, uh, because I don't need to, I can go through a workout, I can, you know, do all the things with <clears> the kids. And then I can settle into, okay, it's time to break my fast because I have a podcast interview with Dr. Barry at one o'clock. But really being that, you know, there is inherent value in eating whole, real foods, not to be, I always say, I'm not, this isn't designed to shame anyone, uh, but small little changes that we can make every day have an enormous impact on our health and wellness, like profound impact.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And and I, like I said, I'm a huge proponent of fasting. I still haven't broke my fast today yet and probably won't until 3 or 4 p.m. And rather than doing cyclic uh, fasting or something like that, I've just been able to incorporate mm-hmm. daily intermittent fasting effortlessly into my daily routine. And so I, I never break my fast before somewhere between 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. And I let my hunger be my guide. And so right now I have zero hunger. I'm not hungry at all. And so when I get back to the house, I may eat. If if I'm hungry, if I'm not, I won't eat. And that becomes possible
0: Mm
1: -hmm. when you're eating very nutrient dense, ancestrally appropriate, proper human food, that kind of behavior, it's fun, And I'm much more productive. And so are you now, Cynthia, not having to carry around all your little Tupperware containers (laughs) with your little mini meals, right? Yeah. And then more and more as I've been learning about human nutrition, I I really have been studying paleoanthropology Mm -hmm. and looking at our ancestors. Because we can actually tell through stable isotope analysis what they actually ate Mm -hmm. 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. And just imagine if we could go back in time 100,000 years and here's our tribe and you're you're carrying around all your little Tupperware bowls, you've got to eat every two hours or drink a shake or eat a bar. They'd be be looking at you like, what's wrong with you? Are you sure you belong to this tribe? Because (laughs) if if human beings had to eat six times a day, like the average trainer and the average dietitian tells people, we would be extinct. We would have been extinct 100,000 years ago because that's not compatible with living in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I've come to believe that that intermittent fasting on a daily basis is absolutely ancestrally appropriate. Our bodies have been doing that since we've been on this planet. Mm-hmm. Like there's literally no time in our in our past where we ate six meals a day, except for when the big food manufacturers started training us that we need to eat three meals a day with snacks in between or your blood sugar might drop right that's that's where that came from that is a profit model that's not a nutrition model
0: no no and and one of my favorite books i think the book is salt sugar fat and that's a book that i would i've read it multiple times i recommend it often and i just remind people if you really want to understand how hoodwinked we have become with the processed food industry that is a fantastic expose on the rise of the processed food industry, which had good intentions, I believe, at the beginning. You know, post World War II. But really, looking at these food scientists, that there's something called the bliss point. They bring in people to test products, and they're looking for the most addictive point at which they can add sugar or salt or fat to make it so difficult to say no to. And so we, you know, largely, I, I, I and it's probably not a popular opinion, but you know considering what the united states subsidizes in the in the process or in the food industry uh and looking at the processed food industry you know our u.s our government is actually funding the processed food industry and it's yep. making us sick and fat and absolutely true and uh which i just find that profoundly sad so i'm very grateful to have uh, other tribe members like yourself and so many other you know wonderful people doing great work to educate consumers so What's next for you? I know you have a a little one at home, so I'm sure life must be interesting and very busy. What's next for you?
1: So I'm working on um, three books at the moment. Uh, And uh, my, my attention deficit disorder used to really mess up my productivity. But now that I'm you know, ketovore carnivore, I actually can use my ADD much more productively. It's mm-hmm. actually almost like a superpower now, instead of a handicap, like it used to be got three books going on. One is uh, tentatively titled the proper human diet,
0: okay. where we
1: basically go into much more detail about everything you and I've talked about today from eating what to eat, mm-hmm. when to eat, when not to eat. And then all the other lifestyle things that I think are going to give optimal human health mm-hmm. longevity mm-hmm. and happiness because that's really what we all want we want to be healthy live a long time and be happy who doesn't mm-hmm. want that absolutely that's the goal and so then i'm also you know i'm i'm 51 now about to be 52 and so i'm working on a book with a friend of mine uh, tentatively titled this is 50 because i think so many people out there think 50s old yes. you're done you're washed yes. up you're over the hill
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in my experience about to be 52 is that's not the case and it should not be the case. And so we're working on that to just kind of help people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. You're not old. You're not washed yeah. up. You know, you're still an athlete. You can still get stronger. You can still get faster. You can still get sexier mm-hmm. in your fifties and beyond. That is not, you're not done. And so get out of the damn recliner, <laughs> get off the damn couch mm-hmm. and live your life. There's, I mean, you know, and and I think another thing that's gonna actually indirectly come from the, the low carb keto carnivore world is I think that people are older people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they're gonna start to be valuable again mm-hmm. because they're gonna not be in chronic severe pain. They're not going to be chronically sedated by 22 medications they take every day. They're actually going to be able to get out and kick a soccer ball with the great grandkids. They're actually going to be able to take their grandkids fishing Mm -hmm. or, or whatever, because they feel like it and they're actually physically able to. So I think there's a day coming when going to visit your grandfather is not going to suck anymore because your granddad's in a nursing home and the room stinks and it, there's weird stuff everywhere, and I'm, I don't know, Grandpa may have pooped his pants, I don't know, right? Who yeah. wants to do that when you're a 10-year-old kid? Yeah. But when, when growing, going to visit Grandpa includes him getting you in a headlock in the, in the backyard and wrestling for 30 minutes, then going for a walk in the, in the forest, and then maybe going fishing or you know throwing the ball around, who wouldn't want to do that? That sounds like a lot of fun. And I think that grandfathers and grandmothers are actually going to be able to do that kind of stuff again because they're not chained to an addictive inflammatory diet. They're not chained to to 10 medications every single day, which by definition are going to have a long list of side effects. If Mm -hmm. you're taking more than three medicines a day, you are guaranteed to have at least one side effect. And they're also not impoverished from paying all the copays pays for doctor visits and all the co-pays for medications and, and chained to having to eat every two hours to keep their blood sugar up. Grandparents are going to be a lot more fun when they're actually able to be fun and have
0: fun. I love it. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I'll definitely have to bring you back when your books are coming out. If you haven't read Lies, My Doctor Told Me, Uh, great book. I've been referencing and recommending it to my own patients. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Where can we find you? Obviously, I know we can find you on YouTube, but where can everyone find you elsewhere? Yeah,
1: and I I have a website where everything's kind of centralized. It's just drberry.com, drberry.com. I'm also on Facebook. I have a little Facebook page. You can just search for Dr. Berry.
0: It's not a little uh, Facebook page. He has a lot of followers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then the book is available not only in a paperback, but also in a Kindle and an audible version. So if you're spoiled like me with your ADD and you want to be doing something while you're reading, you can listen to it on audible while you're doing five other things. (laughs) And so that's available in all bookstores. And um, I'm also on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. If I'm feeling salty, I jump over on Twitter and slap some people around. If I'm feeling loving and genuine, I get on Instagram. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm, I'm all over social media because I took Nisha seriously. You can change the health and change the life of thousands of people. And so early in my medical career, I gave bad nutrition advice and I probably did some damage. And so this is my penance is to be all over social media, trying to help as many people as possible, reclaim their health, first of all, but then optimize their health. That's what I do. That's my job. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. And I'm going to help you live the healthiest life you can possibly live but I got to reach your ears first. I got to reach your eyes. And the only way to do that these days is on social media. So that's where I'll be.
0: Well, thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure and look forward to having you back and all the best to you and your and your wife and your young young one at home. Thank you.
1: And to you as well.
0: Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon and ceramic